0: and interpreted that. And so this this Sunday, today, we're going to be in two places in Scripture. We're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 6. That's where we find the Shema, but we're also going to be in Matthew chapter 22. I I know that that it's tough for you to, to use two fingers to find two places in Scripture. But if you can go ahead and find that passage in Matthew chapter 22, stick your finger there, or a piece of paper to hold your spot, and then flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to be reading verses 4 and 5 today. Will you stand with me as we read God's word together? Listen, Israel, the Lord our God... The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. And now we turn over to Matthew chapter 22, starting with verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they came together, and one of them, an expert in the law, ask a question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? He said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That is the, this is the greatest and most important command, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets depend on these two commands commands. This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly God, as we open your word this morning, as we seek to study your word, I pray that that we would listen, that we would shema, that we would hear your word speak to us today. That we would hear of your unity. That we would hear of your oneness. And that we would hear of your sovereignty. And so, God, as we continue our worship and the study of your word, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. may be seated. So, as I said, we are studying this statement that is known as the Shema. Now, it's a Hebrew word, Shema, um, and in case you're wondering how it is spelled, it is in English, the transliteration of the Hebrew is S-H-E-M-A, Shema. And what it is, is it's the first word in that verse. It is the Hebrew word that means listen or hear. And so it is this statement that comes after those that Jews call and refer to as the Shema. There's a lot in that word, Shema. Now, I want to be very clear here. I am not a Hebrew scholar. In fact, I was able to get through seminary without taking Hebrew. I took Greek instead. But I know a little bit of Hebrew, and I know a little bit about Hebrew. And in a lot of ways, Hebrew is actually a fairly simple language. One of the ways that it's fairly simple is the fact that there aren't a whole lot of words in it, and I'm speaking of biblical Hebrew, not modern Hebrew. There's just not a whole lot of words, which for someone who has a really hard time with his vocabulary flashcards, not having a lot of words is a good thing. The problem with that is when you don't have a whole lot of words, you end up with words having multiple meanings or words having multiple connotations and nuances to them. And so, while Hebrew itself can be a fairly simple language, the reading, studying, and translation of Hebrew can be relatively complicated because they're all of these words, and they can sometimes have different nuances and different connotations to them. So they can be translated slightly different. And Shema is one of those words. We translate it as hear or as listen, and that is not incorrect. But there are some connotations to it that we miss when we just translate it directly into English. And one of those connotations is it's not just hear, it's hear and obey. There is no separate word in Hebrew for obeying. Because the idea is, is that if you hear someone, you are going to obey them. Particularly if you hear God, you are going to obey God. So, so what we have here is we have hear and obey. Hear and obey. The implication is, is that we obey because of who he is. We obey the command of God because of who he is. Because he is God. This is the beginning of the working out of of a, of a theology, and theology is just a word that means study of God. God, study, Theo, God, ology, study of, right? Biology is the study of bios, living things. That's all theology is. is the study of the thought of, the, the, the practice of God. I know there are a lot of people who will say, "Oh, I'm not a theologian or I don't like theologians." Here's the thing. Brothers and sisters, if you think about God, If you try and understand God, if you try and learn about God, you are doing theology. You didn't know you were a theologian, did you? But you are. Some of you better than others? It's a joke. But that's what it is. So this this Shema is the beginning of this understanding and working out of who exactly God is. It's the starting place for Jewish worship. And as we read in Matthew, it's the starting place for us. It's where Jesus said is the greatest command. And we're going to come back to Jesus here in a little bit. But, But as we think about this, we realize that the Shema is telling us that God stands alone. God stands alone. You know, there are a series of statements about, that come out of the Reformation that we call the, the solas, faith alone, Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Well, let's add, a, let's add a sola for this morning. Sola Deus, God alone. If God is the only one, if God is not the only one that we worship, then he won't be worshipped at all. We, we looked last week as we wrapped up the series thinking about the things that make us the church, and we were looking at worship, and that was one of the things that we came across, right? To present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, to, to turn ourselves wholly and completely and totally over to him. If we're turning ourselves wholly and completely and totally over to God, that means there's nothing left for somebody else. And if we're worshiping something else, that means we're not giving ourselves totally to God, and it is not worship of God. The Israel understood from the very earliest moments that the nation's worship was to be restricted to Yahweh alone. Restricted to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob alone. And so they speak the Shema, and the Shema was spoken and is spoken daily as a reminder of Israel's soul worship. This, this, statement that in, in this verse is, is a couple of extra words but, but in, in, in in Hebrew it's only four words that were actually five. It's Shema listen and then the words for Yahweh our God, Yahweh one. Now in English that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, so we translate it, sometimes we translate it as Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one, or Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one, or Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. Or as we read this morning, the Lord, and if you noticed, if you were reading in your Bible, it was the, the, the uppercase L-O-R-D which we've talked before, is an indication in the English that the word there is the tetragrammaton, the, the name for God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, however we choose to, to nuance out those four Hebrew words and translate it out, the meaning is clear. Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was to be the sole object of Israel's worship, allegiance, and affection. Yahweh was to be the sole object of Israel's worship, allegiance, and affection. That was it. It wasn't to be anything or anyone else. That word that that we translate as one or as alone, it implies monotheism, which is a radical concept at the time that God gives to the people these commands. Think what's happening in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, the people have been wandering in the desert after coming out of Egypt. Is there one God in Egypt, or are there multiple gods and goddesses that are worshipped in Egypt? There's Osiris and Horus and Anubis and Isis and mm, keep going. Think about the the Canaanites into whose land they were about to go. There were a myriad of gods and goddesses there. The land of Mesopotamia that Abraham had come out of all of those generations before. Multiple gods. The idea of a monotheism, of of a one god. God. Religion was totally new, totally radical, when God spoke to his people and said, I am the Lord your God and I am alone. Now, let's be very clear the people of Israel weren't terribly good at this, were they? As we continue to read through the Old Testament, it is a continuing story of, oops, we've caught ourselves worshiping other gods. Sorry about that, we'll come back. Oops, we caught ourselves worshiping other gods. Sorry about that, we'll come back. Oops, we caught ourselves worshiping other gods. We'll come back. So it's clear that there were, there were some in Israel who acknowledged the existence of other gods but that affirmation that Yahweh alone was sovereign and the sole object of to be the sole object of Israel's obedience rang out and announced the death of pantheism. Multiple gods. Polytheism. The call for Israel is to hear is significant because it's a call not only for them to hear those words, but then they are to repeat them, right? So it's a, it's a call to listen and a call to speak, a call to hear and a call to obey. Not only was Yahweh one, but also Israel was to be one as well. They were to be one people worshiping one God. And again, the story of Israel over and over and over again was a failure to live into the command to hear and obey that the Lord your God, the Lord is one and alone. I think that we would probably be foolish to think that if the people who had been sustained by God in the wilderness with manna, the people who had made their way through the wilderness by following a cloud of a pillar of, of smoke and fire, the people who had seen God descend upon Sinai in a great cloud, the people who had seen God part the Red Sea as they walked through, the God who the people who were about to see God deliver Canaan over to them, if those folks couldn't remember that God alone was worthy of their worship, we would be foolish to think that we don't need that reminder as well. And so that's where we find ourselves as we turn to this passage from Matthew. Where, where the, the teachers of the law, the, the, the Pharisees are trying once again to trap Jesus. It comes in this, in this whole continuing uh, passage there in Matthew 22 where the Sadducees try and trap Him and then the Pharisees try and trap Him and then the Sadducees try again and it's this back and forth because it's toward the end of Jesus' ministry and the, the religious leaders are, are just desperate to show everybody else that this man... This God-man is not who he says that he is. And so in the beginning of what we read today, we read that the Pharisees realized that he had silenced the Sadducees. If you back up a few verses, you see that silencing. What happens is, see, there are several different views out there at the time. The Pharisees and the Sadducees differ on several things. One thing they differ on is they differ on the resurrection of the body after death. The Sadducees thought that when you were dead, you were dead, and that was it. The Pharisees believed that when you died, that at some point God would raise the dead in the fulfillment of his promises. It's very interesting. You know, we, we think oftentimes that Jesus is at this complete and total loggerheads with the Pharisees all of the time, that they were, they, were, they were so different. But in a lot of ways, what Jesus is preaching is not terribly dissimilar from what the Pharisees are preaching. Of all of the Jewish sects at the time, the Pharisees are probably the closest and this is one of the places where there is this great agreement. So the Sadducees had come, and they're trying to trap Jesus, and they ask him this ridiculous question. They're like, all right, so we know that if a man and a woman are married, and the man dies, and the man's brother is supposed to marry her, so what happens if that happens seven times? There are seven brothers, there's one woman, and they just keep dying, and they keep marrying this woman. And if there's going to be a resurrection smart guy, who is, he going to, who is she going to be married to when they're all raised from the dead? And so Jesus does the Jesus thing, and not only answers the question, but turns it then back on them. He answers the question, and he says, in the resurrection, nobody's married. So just think about that for a second. If you've been married your whole life, and after 50 or 60 years, you're starting to feel like, man, i got to do eternity. Yeah, you don't. There are, some, there are some, some groups out there that, that preach something different. The Mormons say that you're married in, into eternity. But Jesus says that you're not. So Jesus answers the Sadducees' question and then turns it back on them and shows them, using Scripture, that the resurrection of the body is scriptural. So now he's, he's been able to turn it back on the Sadducees. So then now the Pharisees are like, well, well, those guys didn't have any luck, but maybe we can. Maybe we can get him to show everybody that he's not who he says he is. And so they come to him, and they want to trick him. And they do what a lot of us do when we try and trick somebody else. They bring in a lawyer. A tricksy lawyer. And I can imagine there was a long conversation when the lawyer's sitting there, and he's like, how am I going to do this? And when he comes up with this, he's going to ask Jesus what the greatest command is. Because in the law of Moses, there are 613 commands. How could anybody be able to pick out the most important of 613 commands? Because if you pick out one, you're always going to be able to pull up another one and say, this one's not more important. And so he comes to Jesus and he asks that question, which command in the law is the greatest? And Jesus responds by going back to the Shema. And he said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. He then says the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, all the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. See all of the law can be summed up in the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind. Everything is there. The 10 commandments. The 10 commandments are really just 10 different ways that we are called to love God in every way possible. When I was in high school, the high school band had this program where we could, would like hire ourselves out to raise money to be able to go on band trips and stuff like that, doing, doing various odd, odd jobs. And I developed a relationship with a gentleman named Mr. Thursby. Uh, Mr. Thursby had worked with my dad, and so when he called in, somehow serendipitously I got assigned to him, and I ended up working and doing yard work for Mr. Thursby for four years through high school. Ended up doing a lot of other work for a lot of other people because of Mr. Thurphy. One day, we were out there, and we were trying to get this stump up out of his front yard. And so we had clippers, and we had hatchets, and we had water, and we had shovels, and we're trying to get this Stump clean. And all of a sudden, these two young men in crisp, clean, white shirts and little black ties with little black name tags came up and they, without even saying anything, helped us get up and helped us wrestle this stump out. And these were two Mormon missionaries. And we were talking and and he he was talking and Mr. Thursby, let's say he was a bit of a character, and so they, they said, well, you know, we really want to talk to you and, and let you know about, about Jesus and about our understanding of Jesus. And Mr. Thursby said, all right, you can do that if you can name me all Ten Commandments in order. And they couldn't. Probably because no one had ever put them on the spot like that. Their training hadn't in, and trained them to respond like that. And they said, well, thank you. You're having a wonderful day. And he said, thank you so much for your help. And they went on. And I asked well, his Thursday. I said, well, can you name all Ten Commandments in order? And he goes, no. But I don't need to. Because I'm told to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it. Love my neighbor as myself. And all of the law hangs on those two things. And that was the right answer. Lessons in the dirt pile from a retired lieutenant colonel. See, God wants relationship with you. God wants relationship with you. He wants you to love him passionately and righteously and to pursue his glory. That is what God desires. That's what God wants you to desire. What does that look like? What does it look like to put God above all? It means loving him with our heart, soul, and mind. It means loving him with our entire being. It it means presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice. See, Jesus does this wonderful thing. He adds the second part. Just like he he answers the Sadducees' question and adds a, a coda on the end to just drive the point home, he does the same thing with the Pharisees. He answers their question, and then he says, and the second is likened to it, love your neighbor as yourself. Because Jesus is telling us it is impossible to love God fully without also loving our neighbor. It's impossible to love God fully without loving our neighbor. It is also impossible to love our neighbor the way that we are supposed to love our neighbor if we do not love God. All of the law and all of the prophets hang on these two things. See, everyone needs a reminder that God alone must be worshipped. The Pharisees needed that reminder. See, the Pharisees had had, to a certain extent stopped worshiping God and were worshiping the law. They cared more about those 613 commands of God than they did about the holy and perfect God who had given them those commands. Many temptations exist in this world that will attempt to steal away our love for God but as, as we move through the days of our, of our lives, the reminder that, that Yahweh alone, that God alone is worthy of praise will call us back time and time again to trust His provision and His presence in all things. The Lord is one. He tells Israel that He is the only God that they are allowed to love. That there are no others. That in times of drought or famine, they may be be tempted to turn to Canaan's fertility gods, but the Lord reminds them over and over again of his uniqueness. There are no rivals, there are nothing else to pursue. They don't exist. There is one Lord, there is one God. There is one creator and he alone is worthy of our worship, of our praise. You know, we're not careful. Our worship can become careless without honor. Even if we appear engaged in worship. There's a A Baptist pastor from Minnesota, from Minneapolis. Yes, there are Baptists above the Mason-Dixon line. a Baptist from Minneapolis. He's retired from the pulpit, but still has an active ministry of of writing and, and teaching. His name's John Piper. And John Piper says that two factors can cause careless worship. One is the failure to feel the greatness of God's sovereign love. And the other is to mistake his majestic fatherhood. Piper says this, it t- makes a person bored with God and excited about the world to forget the greatness of God. If you don't see the greatness of God, then all the things that money can buy will become very exciting. If you can't see the sun, you'll be impressed by a street light. If you've never felt thunder and lightning, you'll be impressed with fireworks. And if you turn your back on the greatness and majesty of God, you'll fall in love with a world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. As we think about the character of God and who God is and this command to listen and obey, we must begin by accepting that God alone deserves to be honored in our lives as God. God alone deserves to be honored. Our God is a jealous God. He will not accept anything less than our total commitment to him. As we read last week, you cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve God in anything else. We can serve God alone. And just as Israel was called to see God alone as the way, we as Christians, as members of the new covenant, must see Jesus alone as the way and the truth and the life. We must direct our lives to be rooted in Jesus as the eternal and only Lord. And if we live our lives as God intends, then we must begin by living under God's authority through honoring his unique status. As we come to the table this morning, as we come to the table this morning and as we break this bread, and pour out this cup. We are reminded that we are able to do this because God alone is worthy of our worship. Because God alone has done what he has done for us. And so we come here to this table I I hope that you have grabbed some elements on your way in. Um, Rod is standing at the back ready to distribute. If anyone has forgotten, you can raise your hand. I will remind you that there are two things to separate. There is the clear plastic cellophane at the top. That's how you get to, we'll call it bread. And then there's the foil below that that gets you the cup. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly God, with joy we praise you. Because you are a gracious God and you have created heaven and earth. You've made us in your image and you keep covenant with us. Even when we fall into sin. Even when we fail to live up to that covenant promise of placing you and you alone in the center of our lives. God, we give you thanks for for Jesus Christ, our Lord, by whose death, life, and resurrection He has opened to us the way of everlasting life. Therefore, we join our voices with all of the saints and angels and the whole of creation to proclaim the glory of your name. on the night that he was to be betrayed, Jesus gathered with his disciples in an upper room. And during that meal, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Likewise, after the meal, he took the cup and he blessed it. He said, this is is the cup of the new covenant. My blood shed for you and the many. Brothers and sisters, this is not Fairmont First Baptist's table. This is not Carter's table. This is not a Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Episcopalian table. This is the Lord's table. And his invitation is this, that all who do truly and earnestly repent of your sins, who are in love and charity with your neighbors, who intend to lead a new life, following the commandments of God, including the commandment to listen, who promise to walk evermore in his holy ways, you are invited to draw near with faith, to take this bread and this cup to your comfort, to make your holy confession to Almighty God. This is the body of Christ, broken for you and the many. Eat this in remembrance of him. This is the blood of Christ, shed to seal a new covenant, shed for the remission of our sins. Take, drink in remembrance of him. Brothers and sisters, Scriptures tells us that as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we do so in proclamation of Christ's death and his resurrection until he comes again. Take a few moments to reflect. Let's pray. I have just realized that in my eagerness to come to the Lord's table, I have skipped a hymn. And I've got a couple of ladies up here who will tan my hide if we don't do it. So we're going to do it. Um, We're going to sing a verse uh, of Blessed Be the tie That Binds. So will you stand as we...